0: I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show and you want to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com/wordsforgranted, or you can find a link in the contribute tab on the show's website, wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up. I promise. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, and you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. I'm hoping to post a new bonus episode within the next few days. I've also added a PayPal link for people who aren't interested in the monthly contribution, but would still like to give a one-time donation. For that, go to wordsforgranted.com Click the contribute tab and follow the PayPal link there, or just go to paypal.me/wordsforgrant. Okay, let's get on to today's show. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That was the Lord's Prayer, as it appears in the book of Matthew in the King James Version of the Bible. As I'm sure many of you know, it's one of the most popular recitations in all denominations of Christianity. When my mother brought me to Sunday school as a kid, I had to memorize it. And when she went to Sunday school as a kid in the late 50s, she had to memorize it. And future generations of kids that will go to Sunday school will probably have to memorize it too. Any time that I memorize poetry, whether it's a lyric from a song or a verse from the Bible, I tend to use cadence and rhythm to help me move from word to word. And when I recite this poetry that I've memorized, I don't analyze what each word means as I'm saying it or singing it. Sometimes I don't even think about the meaning of what I'm saying at all. I speak for myself, of course, but I bet a lot of you do the same. The reason I mention this is because when I was dragged to church as a kid and forced to memorize and recite the Lord's Prayer, it never occurred to me that there was anything unusual about the prayer's language, that there were words in there that have been dead for nearly 400 years. Week after week, I and the other kids said, Our Father, which art in heaven. Yet, I never stopped to wonder what that art in heaven, Art in heaven really meant. Out of context, art in heaven sounds like a dead painter's pastime. Week after week, I said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, for thine is the kingdom, etc., etc., yet I never stopped to wonder what those thighs and thines really meant. If anything, I just thought that the Bible, or I guess the people in the Bible, had their own special way of talking. The power of poetic rhythm and cadence, mixed with forced memorization and recitation, blinded my critical thinking. Also, I was like seven years old, but nonetheless. What that seven-year-old didn't know was that thy and thine were actually grammatical inflections of Thou, a second-person, informal, singular English pronoun that had fallen out of usage by the late 17th century. That seven-year-old would later become a 14-year-old and re-encounter Thou and its various inflections in high school when he read Shakespeare. By no coincidence, Shakespeare was contemporaneous with the King James Bible, which is the Bible containing the version of the Lord's Prayer that I learned as a kid. Both of them are over 400 years old. I decided to start off today's episode with an account of my own naive encounter with thou in the Bible because some of you, actually many of you, may have had a similar experience. Although the pronoun thou wasn't invented by and is not unique to the Bible, I'm including it in this series on biblical etymology because, other than Shakespeare, the Bible is probably the most common place where people encounter thou in the 21st century. Over the course of this episode, we're going to weave in and out of the related and complex histories of the archaic pronouns thou— its plural form ye, and the more familiar modern pronoun you, all in relation to their impact on our understanding of the Bible in English. I hope you guys like grammar. It's not a straightforward story, but I promise to do my best to keep us all on track. Let's get into it. In the beginning, English had different words for the singular and plural forms of its second-person pronoun. In Old English, the singular second-person pronoun was called thu, and the plural second-person pronoun was called ye. These pronouns were carried into Middle English, and over time, their pronunciations became thou and ye, respectively. Today, we would classify thou and ye as subject pronouns because they were used as the subjects of sentences. In modern English, we have just one subject pronoun for both the singular and plural second person. That pronoun, of course, is you. Not only does you function as both the singular and plural second-person pronoun in the subject position, but it also functions as both the singular and plural second-person pronoun in the object position. In the sentence, you go to the store, you is a subject. And in the sentence, I go to the store with you, you is an object, an indirect object to be precise. There's no distinction between these two kinds of yous. As it turns out, you, the multi-purpose do-it-all second-person pronoun in modern English, began its grammatical career as the object form of the pronoun ye. In other words, you was once the plural second-person object pronoun and the plural second-person object pronoun only. So... You was to ye, as them is to they in modern English. As for the object form of the pronoun thou, it was thee. Okay, so that's a lot of technical information to digest with no graphics, so let's recap. Old English had two second-person pronouns, thou and ye. Thou was the singular, and ye was the plural. These were subject pronouns. When the second person was used as a grammatical object, thou became thee and ye became you. Now, the pronunciation of these pronouns was different in Old English, but for the sake of clarity in this podcast format, I'm going to stick to the modern English pronunciations of these archaic pronouns. So, this was the status quo of the second person pronouns in Old English and it carried over into Middle English. But two changes began to take place. The first change is that in Middle English, you had begun to be used interchangeably with ye as a subject pronoun. This new subject pronoun usage of you didn't immediately render ye obsolete, but instead it coexisted alongside of it as another way of saying the same thing. It's important to note that at this point in the story, even though the grammatical case of you had begun to expand, its grammatical number had not. You was still a plural pronoun, whether used as a subject or an object. The singular second-person subject pronoun was still thou, and its object form was still thee. This expansion of the object pronoun you into the subject position foreshadows its later encroachment upon the singular second-person pronouns several centuries later. Technically, this phase of you's expansion doesn't directly affect thou, but I've mentioned it here for the sake of an accurate chronology of all of the second-person pronouns in English. Okay, now the second change requires a bit more exposition. As I've mentioned on this podcast before, the French-speaking Normans conquered England in 1066, and consequently, the French language began reshaping the English language. I've often talked about this influence in terms of the thousands of loan words that English has borrowed from French, but in today's story, the influence of French is grammatical. In Old French, if you were directly speaking to someone of superior social status, such as a king or an aristocrat, it was conventional to refer to that person using the plural, second-person pronoun as a sign of respect. This feature has carried over to Modern French, and it's a shared characteristic among all of the Modern Romance languages. Sociolinguists call this phenomenon the T-V distinction. The TV distinction takes its name not from television, but from the original Latin pronouns to the singular second-person pronoun and vos, the plural second-person pronoun. According to scholars, by the 4th century AD... Latin speakers had begun using vos, the plural second-person pronoun, as a way of reverently addressing emperors, and this feature survived into the Romance languages after Latin dissolved. Thanks to the French influence on English during the Middle English period, Middle English adapted this TV distinction as well, But instead of borrowing new pronouns from French, it applied the concept to its own native pronouns, thou and ye. So, thou became the informal second-person subject pronoun, and ye became the formal second-person subject pronoun. In English, you might modify this as the ty distinction, but conceptually, it is the tv distinction. So, this was the status quo of the second-person pronouns in Middle English. By the time of Early Modern English, things had begun to change again. For example, Shakespeare is occasionally inconsistent in his usage of the second-person singular subject pronoun. It's usually thou but sometimes he uses ye or even you in cases where the TV distinction is inappropriate. This indicates that by this point in history, some English speakers were beginning to use the pronoun you the way we use it today, as both the singular and plural subject and object second-person pronoun. Actually, part of the reason why thou fell out of usage in everyday speech is because by the 17th century, it had become a pronoun of insult or derision. I'm going to cover this aspect of the word's evolution in greater detail in the next Contributors Only Patreon episode. Again, just go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, and for just a buck a month, it'll be yours. If you're a history of English buff, you probably already know that In Middle English and Early Modern English, thou was the informal way of saying you. But to some of you, this may come as a surprise. I know that when I first learned this fact, it came as a surprise to me. In fact, I distinctly thought that thou was the formal way of saying you, and that we stopped using it because it became too formal. Of course, I didn't base this assumption on investigated fact, but on sheer intuition. I mean, from my naive perspective, it kind of made sense. The only times I ever encountered the word thou was in the works of Shakespeare and in the Bible. And both of those are um, pretty formal, if you take my meaning. Strangely enough, the convention of addressing God as thou in the Bible was seen as a way of expressing familiarity or intimacy with the divine. But we'll get more into that in a bit. With this complicated grammatical backstory in place, let's finally take a look at the thing that actually concerns us in this mini-series, the Bible. The first English translation of the Bible made available to the English-speaking world at large was the King James Version. There were other English translations before it, but due to its widespread dissemination and subsequent influence, it's safe to say that the King James Version set the standard for how biblical language in English is supposed to sound. That's supposed to in air quotes, of course. To a lot of us, words like thou and its grammatical variations, thee and thine, feel like they belong in the Bible. Of course, this quality is not inherent to the words themselves. It just so happens that at the time when the King James Version was translated, the English language had a different set of second-person pronouns than we have today. If this translation had occurred a century later, it's possible that thou and ye would not even have been used. Most scholars agree that even at the time that the King James Version was translated, the grammatical rigidity of thou and ye had already begun to decline. Like I already mentioned, we can get glimpses of this in contemporary works from Shakespeare. In spite of this fact, the translators of the King James Version rigidly adhered to the traditional grammatical distinctions between Thou and Ye, and the vast majority of subsequent translations over the last 400 years, preserve this archaic convention. But why? Is it just because of that feel for biblical language that the King James Bible created? Well, honestly, that may be a part of it, but there are more important reasons. But before getting into those, we should first address why the King James Version stuck to the traditional thou-ye distinction, even though that distinction had begun to erode in everyday speech. Like most languages, Hebrew and Greek, the original languages in which the Bible was written, both distinguish between the singular and plural forms of their second-person pronouns. They also have different inflections for the subject and object forms of these pronouns. Grammatically, in Hebrew and Greek, you can always tell who is talking about whom or what. On the other hand, Modern English has you, 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 and you. That was the singular subject, followed by the plural object, followed by the plural subject, followed by the singular object. Um, My point is that there's no way to tell the difference. In writing, this can lead to ambiguity of the antecedent. An antecedent is simply the grammatical term for what or whom a pronoun is referring to. So, by strictly sticking to the codified usages of thou, thee, ye, and you, the translators of the King James Version had access to pronoun accuracy that we've basically completely lost. However, with the older English pronouns thou, thee, ye, and you, this ambiguity is never a problem. So this is why, even though they were declining in everyday usage, the translators of the King James Bible rigidly adhered to the grammar of thou, thee, ye, and you now let's take a look at an example from the bible where distinctions among the various second person pronouns is crucial to understanding what's actually going on in the text here's isaiah 7 verses 10 through 14. the scene contains the prophet isaiah the king ahaz and the voice of god in ahaz's head it doesn't really matter what's happening in the story Just listen closely to the pronouns being used. Based on our discussion thus far, see if you can keep track of who is speaking to whom. Quote, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord, thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And Isaiah said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Did you catch all of that? Let's take it again, line by line. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign for the Lord thy God. A literal translation of the second half of that into modern English might be, Ask you a sign of the Lord your God. You is used as an object pronoun, and your is a possessive pronoun. The syntax in this literal translation is a little dated, so, a better modern English translation might be, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. This turns the line into an imperative sentence whereby you, which previously was an archaically placed object pronoun, assumes the role of the implied subject pronoun. So, reconfigured for modern English, Isaiah 7:10 through 11 reads, quote, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Ask it either in the height or in the depth below. End quote. Actually, that's pretty easy to understand. The modern English translation doesn't muddle up the meaning. But let's keep going. Isaiah seven thirteen through 14 reads, And Isaiah said, Hear ye now, O house of David, Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? End quote. Okay, again, line by line. Hear ye now, O house of David. Ye, as we know, is being used here as the plural second person subject pronoun. Semantically, this shift to the plural pronoun clearly indicates that Isaiah, the speaker of this dialogue, is no longer addressing the singular ahaz, but the entire house of David in the abstract. The modern English word you could not imply this on its own. But, in conjunction with the following clause, O house of David, we get the idea that Isaiah has changed the addressee. If we translate this line into modern English, we get something like, And Isaiah said... You listen now, O house of David. Is it too small a thing for you to weary men that you will also weary my God? End quote. Again, so far so good. The substitution of the multi-purpose modern English you doesn't obscure the meaning of the text thanks to context clues. But in the following line, we run into a problem. The original King James Version reads, quote, Therefore, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. Since the King James Version always uses you as the plural second person object pronoun, it's perfectly clear that you refers to all of the people in the house of David. The whole house of David shall receive a sign. Now, if we read that same exact line with the multi purpose modern English sense of the word you, the antecedent of the pronoun is unclear. Without a grammatical indication of the singular or plural, this you could just as well be referring to ahas. There's no way of knowing definitely that. Isaiah's vocative aside to the house of David is over. With the modern English, you, you could very well misread it so that Ahaz and only Ahaz will be receiving a sign. But in the King James Version, assuming you know its grammar, it is impossible to have this misinterpretation. In the last several decades, new translations of the Bible have begun using the multipurpose modern English, you. In fact, there's a new King James Version of the Bible that does just this. Here's that version's translation of the same excerpt, Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. Check it out. Quote, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I do objectively feel like the clarity of that concluding line gets lost. This set of biblical verses is just one example in which semantic clarity depends on the thou-ye pronoun distinction. The New King James Version justifies its elimination of the archaic pronouns with the following preface, Readers of the authorized version will immediately be struck by the absence of several pronouns. Thee, thou, and ye are replaced by the simple you, while your and yours are substituted for thy and thine as applicable. Thee, thou, thy, and thine were once forms of address to express a special relationship to human as well as divine persons. These pronouns are no longer part of our language. However, reverence for God in the present work is preserved by capitalizing pronouns including you, your, and yours, which refer to him. That's him with a capital H, as in God. Additionally, capitalization of these pronouns benefits the reader by clearly distinguishing divine and human persons referred to in a passage— Without such capitalization, the distinction is often obscure because the antecedent of a pronoun is not always clear in the English, End quote. Um, okay, but in that passage from Isaiah, our confusion did not arise from an ambiguity between the divine and a mortal, but two mortals, or more accurately, one mortal and a group of mortals. This preface also seems to attribute reverence to the pronoun thou, which, according to its original usage, isn't accurate at all. As I already stated, the sociolinguistic implication of addressing God with thou was one of intimacy and closeness. That's not the same thing as reverence. Sure, the pronoun thou is a common feature of prayers, which are in and of themselves reverent, But that reverence is created by context, not by the nature of the pronouns themselves. This subtle misconception is what led me, and presumably many other people, to falsely assume that thou was the formal way of saying you. Anyway, contrary to the preface in the New King James Version, I actually agree with the conservative point of view that says we should maintain the archaic grammatical distinction popularized by the original King James Version because it more accurately preserves the Word of God in translation. However, there is a great irony to this. Neither Biblical Greek nor Biblical Hebrew had formal or informal second-person pronouns— So, that sociolinguistic connotation of thou, whether you interpret it as intimate or reverent, is a unique byproduct of an English translation that took place at a particular moment in time. So, even though these archaic pronouns preserve the grammatical accuracy of the Word of God, they simultaneously add a sociolinguistic dimension into the biblical text that was not there in the original go figure Well, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you loved it. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and on Facebook as Words for Granted. You can email me directly with comments, criticisms, and concerns at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. At and last but not least, Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice. Trust me, those reviews really boost the visibility of the show and they help more listeners find out about us. Okay, I'll see you next time. Have a great day.